I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is Cherie Atchison, the diversity and inclusion leader defying traditional barriers for both women and ethnic minorities in tech. Born in Sri Lanka and adopted at three weeks old by a working-class Catholic Northern Irish family, it was to provide Cherie with her first lived experience as a person of colour in a majority white community. It is an experience she has taken into her career with companies like Deloitte and Monzo, and is brought to life in her debut book, Demanding More, why diversity and inclusion don't happen and what you can do about it. Making a difference is also the call out from One Young World, the global forum for young leaders, which is our focus this week. And it's a summit and a community for which Cherie is an ambassador. Cherie, welcome to Changemakers. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. I mean, your story is, is really inspiring and, <laughs> and, and I'm looking forward to really, really talking about it. But let, let's start with One Young World. It's, it's a phenomenal youth forum for some of the world's most impactful young leaders. You're, you're an ambassador. Tell Tell us a little bit more about your involvement. Yeah, I mean, I had the privilege of attending One Young World a very long time ago, maybe four or five years ago in Bogota. And the experience is is something that's very eye-opening. It's very enlightening. It takes you out of that bubble that many of us live in. Um, And since then, I've been an ambassador of the organization because I think youth leadership is incredibly important. I also think pushing yourself into new boundaries is really key. And I had the privilege of interviewing Kate Robertson, who's one of the co-founders for Demanding More. And I'm delivering a session on privilege this year at the upcoming event as well. So a huge advocate for what they stand for and really what they're trying to achieve. And I've been involved with it for for a number of years through my firm, Seven Hills. And the one thing that I would say as well is that the the level of can-do positivity that you get when you bring a group of committed activists together like that, it really does inspire you that, that change is possible, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's that experience of seeing people that are probably not much older than yourself when you're attending doing these phenomenal things, breaking down the barriers that have existed for a very long time and doing it in a way that's so vulnerable and authentic. It's really hard not to, you know, follow along and and certainly want to be part of that. Let's move on to the book because this is your first book. It's called Demanding More. Tell us a little bit about about why you wrote it and what you see as the key message. I mean, the, the key message is right in the title. It's about demanding more. It's not about being passive. It's not about hoping that things will get better. It's about being very specific and very actionable about the changes we need to see. The reason that I wrote it is I've been doing diversity and inclusion senior leadership for almost a decade. I started my career as a software engineer and I take a really data-driven approach to diversity and inclusion. And it's something that a lot of people are saying that they're doing, but they're not doing it. And what's really important to me is that for us to really move forward with diversity and inclusion, we really have to recognize and spend time understanding the deliberate choices humans, people have made to bring us to this point, to bring us this to this point of exclusion. And the book really focuses in on that because I think it's really key to delve into that history and then move forward with actionable toolkits that people can take away. So a lot of people are talking about diversity. They're talking about inclusion. What's the tipping point, though, to action? What what, what creates the change? Because a lot of the, the message of the book is also about how to do it, isn't it? Yeah, the, for me, the, the tipping point to change is when you embed accountability for this with senior business leaders, that when you spend the time actually making this part of their performance ratings, as part of their goals and so 
so on, because it is part of your business strategy. And when you're not viewing this as something that sits in your HR department, but actually something that goes across absolutely everything. Likewise, in governments, in policies, in societies, when we start to embed, how will this affect underrepresented people or marginalized people before we make the decision? Because what's happening now is we're making decisions, we're rolling out big changes. It affects people that are already being forgotten about more and more and more. And then we say, oh, sorry, actually, sorry about that. Hope that's all right. Actually, no, it's not all right. You should have thought about it in the first place. I mean, you talk about being data driven. What does the data show us in the midst of a pandemic in terms of what's happening? I mean, it's not good. We, We can see that the gaps of inequity and poverty, for example, are widening and widening. When it comes to, for example, job losses, we've seen that women and very specifically black women have been the most affected with job losses. We actually seen white men and white women gain jobs at the end of last year. What we're also seeing is from ONS data, for example, in the UK, that when it comes to unemployment rates, black and Pakistani women, again, are specifically the most affected We're seeing regularly and more regularly now, especially when it comes to socioeconomic background and class, that some of us have been able to weather this storm in ways that others simply can't. I include myself in that, and that's privilege. And what's really key, actually, is that we should hopefully have learned a lot of really hard lessons over the last year and a half in a very, very serious way. And what's really key is that actually we don't just, when we do eventually start to get into some sort of normal life, we don't just forget about the fact that all of this has happened, but actually we learn from it and we change things because of that, as opposed to just going back to the way it was, which actually you know, didn't work anyway for a lot of people. Do you think that there is an increasing level of consciousness, though, about about fairness, about equity? You know, I mean, a, a lot of guests that I interview will talk about similarities with, say, the late 60s in terms of just a rising level of a more demanding culture, one that wants to see more in the way of, of change. I mean, is, is that the flip side of the lack of progress? Is that there's more appetite to create the change, do you think? Yeah, I do think so. I think we are seeing a greater awareness and a greater desire to be aware at the moment from current generations and younger generations. And I'm hoping that that will continue to move from awareness into actual action. Being aware is really positive because you're starting to take those blinders off. But actually what we need now is you've taken the blinders off, you've taken the sunglasses off. What are you going to do with this new awareness? And that's why in Demanding More, I talk a lot about moving from awareness to education to action and going around in that loop. Because what I really genuinely hope is that The awareness that people have had since the murder of George Floyd, since the global pandemic has hit us, since we've seen the most marginalised people continue to be more marginalised, that we do something about it, whether it's through activism, whether it's through company policy, changing, donating, whatever it might be, whatever's in the realm of our, our grasp, that we do something with that. In terms of a message to leaders, those with the privilege, those with the power to make changes to their own organisations. You talk about the idea of real inclusion, the idea of actually, you know, this needs to be substance, it needs to have real intent and and meaning. Pick out the story for us in terms of, and possibly frame it as a a message, a, a challenge or a call to action. I mean, my call to action to leadership is to 
remember that this is bigger than just you. What you do now around diversity and inclusion will shape whatever that company is in five years, 10 years, 15 years time. Do you want that to be a positive impact for everybody or do you not? And this is a, this is a base level of it. Do you care about people that aren't like you or do you not? And if the answer is that you do not, then I'm afraid I can't help you because I think what's really key here is that when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's so easy for all of us, myself included, to fall into a pattern of, oh, I care about this issue because I directly relate to it. I can directly care about that or I know someone that would. But what about everybody else? And when we think about the majority of people in those leadership positions you talk about, they are they don't look like me. They're not like me. They're mostly heterosexual, non-disabled financially privileged white men. Now, if those people said mostly directly identify with white women from the similar class background and so on, then we've just formed another version of exclusion. I call it exclusionary inclusion because we've just forgotten about everybody else. And my call to action is please make sure that you don't do that. Remember that the world does not revolve around all of us singularly. And keep that in mind when you're starting to develop or you're starting to think about inclusion. You have to push boundaries. You have to think wider than just what affects you personally. And as we look to a life where we move, let's hope, beyond a global pandemic at some point, do you feel positively about the prospects for change? Or or do you feel that this is just going to be the fight of your life for the rest of your life? I try to be really positive because I think otherwise it can be really, really exhausting. There are very, there are very much times where I despaired by what I hear or what I see in the news or the view of, you know, wealth equals hard work as opposed to understanding the implications of what that means when we see people in leadership, in government positions and so on, really not getting to actually, this is not what it's like on the ground. This is not what it's like for everyday people. However, like we said, that awareness that people are starting to have, that light bulb moment that whilst it's privileged that many people have only just gained that, they've still gained it. So it's still something. And I think there's something powerful in that. I think there's there's something really strong in that, not just even for those people alone, but actually think about how that might influence their peer group, their friends, if they have kids, how they raise those children who then move into, you know, different roles and different ways of life. I think, you know, it could be a really powerful moment. You phrase something which a lot of people I interview who are in the business of campaigning for change from, you know, whatever it might be from disability through to fairness at work. Quite often you get this sense that there are moments where people feel I could give up. And a lot of people will share the way that they manage to persevere, to carry on. I mean, if you were to give advice about how you can capture that positive energy what keeps the resilience going in you? Is there is there a learnable tip there, Cherie? I mean, absolutely. I think I consider myself incredibly privileged because I am listened to. And being listened to is one of the biggest privilege, personally, I think people can have because it means that people are waiting to hear what you say and are, fingers crossed, hopefully willing to digest it. Now, if I stop speaking, no one can listen to me. No one can listen to the things that I'm talking about, the changes that I'm, I can make, the power that I have as a senior leader in my industry. So for me, that's the thing that keeps me going. It's that actually, if I don't speak, I am wasting one of the biggest privileges that I have, which is being listened to. And that's simply just not an option, I don't think, because it's taken me a long time to get to here. But I mean, it's still 
can't waste that. Tell us about the world of tech. I mean, this is an area that you excel in and you have a very particular take and a vantage point on. Is it what we hope for in terms of it being the progressive future shapers, the creators of our future world, or, or is it more regressive, actually, in, in terms of its record on, on diversity and inclusion? I mean, it's it's not doing entirely great because what's happening for me personally with technology diversity and inclusion is people and a lot of companies focus all of their success measures on representation so the number of people from different backgrounds they have but actually not measuring the inclusion part how do they those people get promoted are they even staying are they in junior roles mid-tier senior roles and so on and actually one of the things that I really would like the tech industry to move forward from is recognizing that diversity and inclusion work doesn't sit in a HR team. It affects how you create those solutions. It affects how you test them. It affects how you roll them out, how you make the teams that create the solutions that all of us use. And that's a really big evolution we need because what's happening is companies put a lot of effort into DNI reports, community events, and so on. But then the technology solutions they roll out are not inclusive. You can't have that. In terms of why they get it wrong, I mean, these are young firms quite often they're generationally young in terms of the often the the founders you've worked at at a very successful one of those by their nature you would have thought from the outside looking in is that this will be where some of our most progressive business leaders will find their future but it doesn't sound like the reality adds up to the narrative why the gap because again i think people even when we're talking about progressive you know startups progressive Progressive tech companies, it's still very, very easy for people to fall into the trap of only caring and creating inclusion work that is to do with things they directly identify with. And quite a lot of startups, for example, that are working in that space that do care are honing in in that way, which then means more often than not, for example, people of color are being forgotten about because they're not represented, but actually the focus is on gender or potentially sexual orientation. What about disability? What about working parents, for example? Those things aren't being considered because they're not front of mind right away. How do you address it? I mean, you've you've worked for companies from, you know, consulting companies like Deloitte through to the unicorns of our day, like, like Monzo. In terms of how you found it internally, if we were to go go behind the lobby of those of those organizations in terms of how change happened from your point of view or didn't happen, what were the key takeouts from your own experience of working within those cultures? The problems that you find in both around you know diversity and inclusion broadly are very similar. The ways that they have manifested are very different. When you talk about, for example, a, a larger consulting organization that has existed since the dawn of time, you're really talking about a legacy <laughs> culture that, that takes intense, intense organization transformation to be able to change the mindsets, the processes that have existed for that length of time. When you're talking about smaller companies that have, you know, really just finding their feet are new-ish. And what you're talking about is a culture has been shaped usually deliberately because that's what they have thought was important. But actually, people haven't considered the other mindsets that they need around different areas of inclusion. And for me, again, on both sides of that, when it comes to tackling that, 
it's really key I engage senior leadership, how they understand what their role is and how they will be accountable for change, whether it's around their OKRs, for example, or their, their promotion rounds and so on, but also really engaging middle management who make those decisions day to day on supporting people or not supporting people. And transparency for me is really key. And I drive that home a lot in the book, being very open externally. What are you doing? How are you doing it? Why are you doing it? And what are you hoping to achieve? From that perspective, you're talking about progress, actually how, how progress happens. And if you were to compare and contrast the experience of working with a very large multinational that, you know, to, to, to use your phrase, has been around since, since the dawn of time, uh, through to, you know, a relatively young company that's kind of making it up year by year in terms of what they're doing. Is there a cultural condition? that makes change more or less likely to happen because you are more or less established, because you are more or less global, because you are more or less entrepreneurial? I mean, is there is there a kind of type of culture that you've identified that say, this is where you can make the progress? Yeah, and that type of culture is when you have leaders that are willing to break down the processes that they have been become really reliant on and allow you to change them. And you can get leaders in any business that are willing to do that and you can get leaders that aren't. The The key thing when it comes to scale, for example, the logic will tell you it's easier to change processes in a company of 150 people versus 10,000 people. Okay, that's easier to do by default because you're able to make changes very quickly. But the key thing is that doesn't mean that you still can't do it in bigger companies. You just have to phase the approach. I've worked in companies of thousands of people to 10 people when I've been helping organizations like this. The company I'm working at now is around, is in 40 cities and 19 countries. It's a blend and it, it there's lessons on both sides, absolutely. Um, but the leadership piece is the real key. Also, another part of your story, Sheree, is, is practical activism. The women who code, you, you brought that to the UK. This isn't just about the advisory piece with companies. There's, there's an element of actually getting up, making the difference. In terms of that experience, in terms of actually, you know, we, I've interviewed um, Anna Brailsford, who I'm, I'm sure you'll know, actually is in, a, in a very similar space. What was your experience of actually trying to actually make the change happen at that grassroots level? I think context is really key. So when I when I decided to branch Women Who Code to the UK, to Belfast, firstly, I was a brand new software graduate. <laughs> so I was what, 22, something like that didn't have any of the I guess clout that maybe you would call now or any of the reputation I have now people don't want to listen to you (laughs) when you're a brand new graduate trying to rip things up and do them a different way but I kept pushing through and it was difficult it was difficult I won't lie about that because I I was doing things that some other people had tried to do and didn't work I was getting a lot of I guess why are you doing this when somebody else who's more established than you has tried and it didn't work for them so why would it work for you I guess I am very very doggedly determined and so I figured you know I still haven't tried it let me try it so when I brought women who code over to Belfast then London and Bristol and Edinburgh then down to Dublin and then across EMEA I was taking a non-profit that was primarily US focused and branching it in a different way. We are now the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in technology. When I started with them, we had around, I think it was three to 4,000 global members. 
And we are now at the current count over 250,000 global members. And to play any kind of role in that is phenomenal. And I now sit as an advisory board member with the organization. But I built up remote teams in the areas. I spent time understanding the nuance of areas. And that's a really key part of diversity and inclusion strategies. People think, let's even use the UK. Oh, a UK strategy is the same everywhere. Well, no, it's not, because London is entirely different than Belfast entirely different than Bristol and so on. So you use the phrase doggedly determined. And actually, yes. in, in preparation for this, the, the the feedback I had was that this is a really determined person. <laughs> this is someone that has seized the challenge, that is engaged in the challenge. And that determination is what's going to make that change possible. And it feels to me like like today is a kind of portrait of determination in terms of what happens when you don't like the story in front of you, when you don't like what the data says. Let's talk about where that determination comes from. Can can we can we go right back to the start in terms of growing up in Northern Ireland? Tell, tell us a little bit about, about the early years in terms of actually Cherie growing up. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I was adopted at three weeks old from Sri Lanka by an Irish family. And my brother is also adopted as well. And we were raised in a town called Coal Island, which is, I don't know how to describe how rural it is. <laughs> but Very rural. <laughs> when, very, very rural. When there is, you know, traffic jams or slow traffic, it's usually because if you're trying to get out somewhere, some farmer is moving their cows from one field to another. So pretty rural. When, when, where I went to primary school, you know, there were... F- cattle in the field beside where we we would go to lessons so that that was the daily rush hour was it that's the daily rush hour (laughs) (laughs) but when you grow up somewhere like that it will not surprise people listening that it's not very diverse of course and certainly in northern ireland there's very clear religious lines as well and very clear division certainly when i grew up in the 90s did it did it shape your outlook i mean absolutely i think it's impossible impossible for those kinds of things to not shape your outlook. And, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that your foundational beliefs and your foundational views on things are really formed in those those formational years, those years where you're really finding, you know, what do I think about things? And that's shaped by where you live, where you have access to things and who's raising you. But growing up, certainly in, in NI, I used an experience. People talk a lot about being the only in their team, the only in their business, whatever that might be. But actually, a lot of people don't have the experience or very few people have the experience of being the only in your family, being the only in your school, being the only in your anything in your in where you're raised. And that's a very different experience. So what is the consequence of that experience in terms of your your lived experience in terms of being the only on a number of, you know, different sort of positions in your life in terms of what the consequence that that provides in terms of an outlook you know you could you could you could understand if it made you feel I'm an outsider I don't fit in I don't want to be involved or I want to get involved and I want to change the system or actually I just want to fit in in terms of where that took you explain to us a little bit about about how it shaped the next phase in terms of your outlook and and I suppose the consciousness the agency that it, that it gave to you yeah I think It's an evolution to get to the stage where I am, where I am very confident and very comfortable saying what I want and how I want. Certainly when you grow up, you know, as a teenager, everybody wants to fit in. Okay, people that even are trying to stand out still want to fit in with someone. Nobody wants to be the person that stands out regardless of what you do. Now, when you're the only brown face in the entire school, 
you're going to stand out whether you like it or not. And it was when I went to university and certainly started doing these leadership pieces, sort of 22 onwards, I'm now 30, that I became very confident and I guess very comfortable with honing in the fact that I am an only in many, many ways. That gives me the opportunity to be a first in many, many ways. And I have been the first for many things. Um, but it's really about honing it in in a different perspective. And was that was that a lightning bolt moment yeah. or was it more a kind of journey? I, th- I think there was there was a few moments where it kind of just like clicked. And that was that. like I when I started doing this work and I was traveling the world, training senior leaders and speaking at conferences that nobody like me was doing. But when I got my first role, my first full time role doing this work at Deloitte, I remember really, really clearly moments where people used to you know, lean forward and interrupt me and speak over me. And then there was a certain period when I started doing this for maybe about two and a half years and I'd won some awards and, and a few other things. I was writing for Forbes and stuff that those same people started to shut up and sit back and listen. I remember <laughs> that moment. I remember it so clearly. And I remember coming home that day and telling my partner I was like there's that pivot there's that peace now and I still remember that and that's only gotten better and better for me because I now have the privilege of being listened to and I also am of the, the opinion now that I actually don't care if people want to interrupt me because I will just keep talking now <laughs> instead of stopping. So for the person that's listening to that and saying you know what I want to be listened to because I've got something to say what's the advice you'd give to them? I would firstly say keep saying it don't be put off if someone tells you to stop, don't be put off by being interrupted. Because if you don't say anything, no one will ever hear you speak. So be determined with that. Be ready for people to, you know, try and shush you because that will happen. What I would also say is that think about the people around you that you can help from, that can help you from a network perspective to help give you that shield as well. And, you know, I've had great sort of allies in my career who've done that for me and now I do it for a lot of people because I have the ability to do that so look out for people that can also help you you don't have to try and do it by yourself as well but I think we, we are back to that determination to keep going yeah to actually you've got to you've got to do that I mean another story of determination Shri was was your quest to find your biological family mm. which, which took you to Sri Lanka to a tip hotline to mm. sort of um, <laughs> primetime uh, TV news I mean it, it, it became a real quest I mean pick up pick up the story for us in terms of in terms of that that incredible adventure that incredible journey that, that you took to, to, to achieve that yeah I I still sometimes can't get my head fully around that. So when me and my my partner got married four years ago, we went to Sri Lanka as part of our honeymoon. And like I said before, people are very used to being the only in many, many ways in work, but not in their everyday life. Most people, when you like when you walk down the street, do you see people that, you know, look like you or, you know, maybe that's a relative. I've never had that in my entire life. And then we went to Sri Lanka and I, I remember my husband is a white Irish man six foot two doesn't look like Sri Lankan man I'll tell you that and um, (laughs) when you're walking down the street and it's like oh my god everybody looks like me that person could be related to me I have no idea and I've never had that experience and so when we came back really we decided you know what let's see let's see what the story is let's see if someone is out there 
we had my birth documents and we had four photos that my dad had taken when we were out. So using my story, I contacted some of the news stations out there. They were really interested in helping. And like you said, they created a hotline and everything else. The story was viral. It was on primetime news every night, which is very surreal. And then what basically turned out was all of my documents had false information on them. But the four photos, they obviously weren't false, they were they were real. And my birth mother still looks like almost identical to the photos, albeit, you know, obviously older. And someone just recognized her and was like, I think I know that woman, I'm going to call in. So they called in, the news team went out, we did DNA tests. And we barely needed DNA tests because we like we have a very similar face, which is why the photos were really helpful. And it turned out it was her. We flew out. I met my half sister and she has a husband and we met my birth mother. And yeah, it's people. How, how did you feel? How did you feel about that? <laughs> it was because I mean, I'm feeling the goosebumps go up on the back of my neck. Listen, I mean, I mean, presumably this must have been a hugely emotional moment, was it? Yeah. I mean, it's a very bizarre moment when you look. So you've never seen anyone who has ever looked like you. And then you stare at this woman like in the face and she literally looks like a copy paste version of you only old and there's a there's a video online so I I was actually told I was going to meet her privately with my husband and a few of the news team that had found her but what the team actually did is they had me in a room being interviewed with like hundreds of people and then brought her in and I didn't know this was happening so it was videoed so the video was online where I meet her for the very first time and you can see that you know I'm actually quite angry in the video because I wasn't told (laughs) So I, there's one moment where I look to the side to my husband, where I'm clearly like very in a not good mood. I won't swear on the podcast. And <laughs> then I look back and I see her. And it is, it's a very strange experience. It's exciting. It's bizarre. It kind of throws you. But we spent time going and seeing where she lived. And, you know, she lived in poverty. Her She wasn't really being looked after. And we were able to help with that and stuff. But yes, it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. In terms of... I guess life's jigsaw puzzle in terms of the, that piece of the puzzle, in terms of what that has has helped you understand about yourself and I guess the, the lessons that you've drawn from it. What, what, what would you share? Privilege is a really nuanced thing. Whenever I went back and we, we seen where she was staying, she lived in this like, how do I describe it? Like a small hut with like mattress thing, barely a mattress, like just the bed. She was sleeping on like an old pair of like pants that she was lying. She didn't have a pillow. When it was too warm, she lay outside because there was no like fans or anything. And that gives you a really different perspective because I remember when we came back and you know, everybody, we all complain and it's just part of being a human, but actually, and we're all aware that poverty exists for the most part, but actually it's very eye-opening. And I, I don't know if the word is jarring almost because I very easily could have not been put up for adoption. I was very lucky to have been put up for adoption and my half-sister could have been put up. It turns out I have a half-brother as well. He could have maybe not been put up or put up. And it's those like that quick, like that click decision that has changed my entire life. And even now, there's still moments where I'm like, I'm so unbelievably lucky and so privileged from that one decision 
that it's impossible to put that into words and and that's what that perspective gives me I think it's it's obviously a very new I don't expect people to all have that perspective but I mean it, yeah but I wonder if if it also helps explain I guess the fire and the energy behind demanding more because because decisions matter right? you know from your your own life experience has been one where decisions could have gone in a lot of different ways but actually you are the living proof of the consequences of those decisions. I suppose, you know, it brings me on to my my last question, which relates to your your quote for life, which you shared, which goes with, with, uh, with this episode, which is always consider everything outside of your own bubble. Br- bring that to life for us to sort of close the interview, Sheree. For me, what I think is really key is that we remember the world does not revolve around us. It's so easy to fall into the trap of when we make decisions that, okay, this is fine for me, so it's fine for everybody. And I will tell you now that it is not. And my call to action to people is to take that moment, take a breath, take a few seconds to consider wider than the initial thoughts that come into your head. Because if we don't do that, we are going to continue with the same problems. And what we've seen certainly in the last year is we cannot keep doing that. Cherie Atchison, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you very much for having me. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Yeah.